Hello, welcome everyone to A Reason for Hope. We're very <laughs> glad you're joining us today. A Reason for Hope is a, a live broadcast, an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, you can send your questions in through our multiple online platforms or our email address, and we will get to those questions on our show today. We delve into the, that's my word again, delve. Here it is. Apparently I say delve a lot. I never, I'm self-conscious <laughs> I, about I, it now. I fear I have made you self-conscious of <laughs> that's that. That's right. It was um, not my intention. <laughs> that's, that's okay. It's, it's nothing not a, compared to my forehead. It's, <laughs> not a, it's not a bad word, I guess, delve. Um, so that's what we're all about, reason for hope. Uh, lots of delving. Lots of delving going on the here. Bible. That's right. Yeah, that's Bring your, your snorkels and be prepared to delve or dive. Uh, but yeah, if you have a question, uh, maybe a verse or passage of scripture, maybe even something you're going through in your own life and you'd like a biblical perspective or Christianity in general or even other worldviews and um, uh, other religions, um, really any honest question you have, as long as you know, we're going to use the Bible to find the answer uh, to those questions. We believe that the word is what it says it is, God's word breathed out and profitable for many things. And so we're glad that you're joining us and giving us those questions to create our content today. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be fielding those questions as they come on in live with us today. To my right, Pastor Scott Richards, who's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. This is me. How are you doing? doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah, Yeah. I seem to be the only uh, one unafflicted by allergies here on the panel. Oh, man. So I will try to, uh, to do my best to Hold up the program as yeah, much as I can to speak when we can't. Yeah, yeah. The, the allergies have been absolutely crazy here in Tucson, Arizona, and I'm feeling it. For the first two years I was in the states, I didn't have any allergies, and then I got sensitized to it, and it came down like crazy. So, but also with us, Pastor Sean Richards, the, the Scott Junior. How you doing today? <laughs> Still getting used to the angle off to turn my head. Yes, yeah, so yeah. we keep moving these guys around just to keep them on their toes. That's right. But uh, we'll sitting see. down, we like to tweak. But you doing good? You feeling good? You yeah. look good. Yeah, and the natural treatments are doing their job. Very good. Yeah, well, we rely on the Holy Spirit. Anyway, so <laughs> so before we go any further, um, like I said, um, let me, well, before we pray, actually, let me go over all these uh, aforementioned platforms that you can join us on. As I mentioned, A Reason for Hope. Um, we are with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, as I mentioned, Tucson, Arizona here. But you can join us all around the world, whatever time that is for you and we have people join us from Africa we had a guy from uh, Singapore yesterday and so it's very exciting to see where the viewers and the questions come from so you're all very welcome indeed it's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson so you can go to our website calvarychristianfellowship.com that's a great home base for you if um, uh, you would like to check out our church here in Tucson Arizona especially if you're in that area uh, don't be a stranger you can just click around on our website we have lots of things going on of course services Wednesday evening and Sunday morning. So check that out if you're interested in that. But for the purposes of A Reason for Hope, if you click on that Watch Live tab that's right there, that will take you to our live page. You will see the live video there. You can sign in with a username and be part of the broadcast there. I'll be monitoring that for your questions. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown, as you can see, to our next live show and a schedule of upcoming events as well. So anytime we're live, that's where you'll find us. Uh, ccftucson.online.church is the direct link to that page. We're on Facebook, of course, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or facebook.com slash ccftucson. Don't forget to like and share us around. We'd love to reach out to your friends if you've been blessed by this ministry. And once again, that's another way you can send your questions in the chat box. And I will be monitoring those as well. We try and go on a first come, first serve basis as I juggle around these various platforms. 
We have uh, an app for your mobile device as well. Look for um, that red background with the Calvary Chapel Dove logo, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. You can download that on your, on your iPhone or your Android or your iPad, your mobile device. And we also have a channel on Roku and on Apple TV. So if you have that capability, um, add our channel and you can view us uh, live there as well. We're just all over the place, aren't we? Uh, on YouTube. <laughs> hard to miss us. <laughs> it's hard to miss us. Yeah. Whether you like it or not, we will find you. Yeah. Uh, on YouTube, if you look for a reason for hope, that's the name of the channel on YouTube. And if you go to that live tab, I added this little circle around the live. Anytime we've been live, uh, it's archived there automatically. So any service we do, any reason for hope show. So if you miss one or want to recap, uh, rewatch one, that's a great place to find it, that live tab on our uh, reason for hope channel on YouTube. And of course, we're live there as well and you can send your question in in the chat box there also uh, our pastor scott richards right here is on twitter uh, scott r4h is his handle you can follow along with him as he posts highlights from the show he posts kind of commentary on things going on in the world so many things as it pertains to end times and prophecy and those kind of things so and a little tomfoolery mixed and in a there little as well tomfool yeah <laughs> yes a little equal parts tomfoolery so <laughs> entertaining and informative follow along with scott on, on twitter scott r4h if you're a twitter person and we're on rumble now as well look for a reason for hope bible q a uh, right, right now it's an archive of our shows, but we're hoping to be able to go live there as we figure that out, uh, that capability as well. But if you're on Rumble, add us a reason for hope, Bible Q and A. And last but not least, our email, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope, all spelled out at gmail.com. Use that uh, address, especially if you're listening to us on the radio. You're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you per se. But use our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll get to your question on our next show and consider joining us live on one of those other platforms when you can do that. Well, with all that being said, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us today? I certainly would. That'd be great. I enjoy talking to God, yeah. so let's do that. <laughs> he enjoys hearing. Yeah. Lord, thank you that we have this amazing privilege, this connection uh, through prayer where we can come into your presence and know that you you hear and not only listen to the words that we express uh, with our tongues, but what's going on in our hearts as well. Lord, I do pray that you be doing a, a heart-to-heart search in uh, the lives of your people. Lord, you want to get a hold of our hearts in a very profound and deep and abiding way. And Lord, you use your word to do exactly that. We pray, Father, that you would allow uh, each of us as uh, we answer these questions that come from the heart uh, to share your truth, your whole truth and nothing but your truth because that's what changes lives. Allow us through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this. Thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Man, amen indeed. Your truth, nothing but the truth. I like it. Yep. Yeah, it sounds like a slogan. <laughs> it does sound Have that like printed up. <laughs> yeah. Well, Scott, is there anything you'd like to share? You often give us a bit of an update yeah. going on in yeah. the world. Uh, it's kind of a, a shuffling of uh, the major players in the Middle East is uh, going on these days, uh, and uh, we wanted to make you aware of it. A couple of uh, interesting headlines since last I was here on the broadcast with you. Uh, one of the most interesting headlines in uh, the Jerusalem Post uh, said, Iran will destroy Tel Aviv and Haifa at the slightest Israeli action. Uh, this threat comes uh, not only from Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, an individual who has a long and storied track record of uh, violent suppression of the Iranian people. He literally has the blood of thousands of people on his hands. And so when he makes threats like this, certainly nothing to uh, 
take uh, lightly. Uh, very interesting reshuffling of uh, events, very uh, interesting strategy that the Iranians have used to become uh, such a uh, incredibly important source of disruption and terrorism in the Middle East. Uh, the first came uh, when the Iranians used a proxy of theirs, uh, the uh, Chechen rebels, uh, to uh, essentially uh, blackmail uh, the Russians into a uh, strong alliance with Iran. Uh, this happened a number of years ago, but you might recall that uh, Russia and uh, Vladimir Putin uh, were on the ropes because uh, the Chechen rebels, uh, who, by the way, are a Shiite uh, Muslim following sect, uh, were so successful in their terrorist operations in Russia, they blew up an apartment building, an entire apartment building in Moscow, mm. uh, downed a uh, Soviet uh, or a, a Russian airliner in mid-flight. Uh, but the worst was the Beslan School Massacre, where over 800 children were uh, killed by these Chechen rebels. And uh, essentially, this was spelling political disaster for Vladimir Putin. Uh, as we said, he was on the ropes. And then the Iranians, believe it or not, who also are Shiites. In fact, uh, they are the epicenter of Shiite Islam in the region, said to the Russians, hey, how about if uh, we uh, make a deal with you? We'll call off our uh, Chechen rebels if uh, you extend uh, a little bit of an olive branch to us. That olive branch came in the form of a fully functioning nuclear reactor uh, that the Russians built for the Iranians a few years ago. And uh, this hand-in-hand -hand alliance that has never historically been a part of uh, Iran's uh, and Russia's dealings with you—they really would have nothing to do with each other until this happened. Well, because of that, because of Russian backing and so on, uh, the Iranians have been able to flex their muscles in the Middle East. Uh, their nuclear program uh, would not have been possible without uh, Russian expertise and help uh, from other uh, Russian-leaning alliances like the North Koreans and so forth. But now we're seeing them up to the same thing again. Very interesting. Uh, we uh, talked about how China came in and uh, formed a peace treaty between uh, two committed enemies, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the epicenter of another form of Islam, the dominant form of Islam, Sunni Islam. And, uh, you know, what's the difference between Sunni and Shia? Well, it really kind of comes down to who they felt uh, the proper uh, uh, successor to Muhammad was. And uh, then there are some other doctrinal differences that they have. Uh, but uh, they, they absolutely despise each other. Uh, they despise each other more than they despise, believe it or not, the Jewish people. Uh, but lo and behold, China comes in and uh, creates this peace treaty between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Why did the Saudis uh, lean that way? Well, they were leaning strongly towards joining the Abraham Accords at one point, uh, but uh, with the current administration and the instability and uh, the awful example that was set uh, by our withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, the Saudis did their calculus and came to the conclusion they couldn't really count on the United States. Uh, if they can't count on the United States to be there for them, uh, they can't really count on the United States to be there for Israel. Uh, and so they turned north towards Iran and uh, in a very humiliating move in a lot of ways, uh, made peace with the Iranians. Now, this is where this gets interesting. The Saudis' number one thorn in the flesh militarily prior to this time 
has been a group called the Houthi Rebels that live in the small country on the very southern tip of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula uh, called Yemen. Uh, they have not been able to corral these individuals. The Houthi Rebels have uh, launched numerous uh, drone attacks on Saudi infrastructure doing incredible damage to a number of their oil refineries and uh, shipping points and so on. Well, lo and behold, guess what's happened? The Houthi rebels have called off all attacks on Saudi Arabia. Why? Because they are sponsored by, guess who? <laughs> the Iranians. And so, you know, here we see uh, some very interesting things prophetically coming together. Uh, we, we do see a lot of the major players uh, that are detailed in the book of Revelation as being a part of last day's events, uh, seemingly taking their marks on the stage. Uh, Russia, obviously, uh, mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, part of the, the head man of the Gog-Magog invasion. Uh, the uh, allies uh, right at their right hand are Persia. If you talk to a person from Iran, you call them Iranian, they will correct you. They say, no, I am Persian. They're very, very proud of their heritage. Uh, this coalition of uh, Islamic nations from the Central Asiatic Republics, uh, Sudan is mentioned as one of the invaders, Libya is mentioned as one of the invaders in this last day's invasion, but Russia primarily uh, being dragged into this invasion uh, seemingly unwillingly, hooks in the jaws, Ezekiel uh, described it as being, as far as this Russian leader is concerned, leading this coalition into Israel. So we, we do see that, we see the Iranians obviously, but interestingly, we also see uh, the uh, Chinese beginning to be more and more involved in the Middle East. It seems as the United States bails out of the Middle East, China is more than happy to come in and fill that power vacuum, as demonstrated by the fact uh, that uh, the Chinese masterminded the uh, rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran, uh, something nobody would ever th thought would happen. And as well, uh, Prime Minister Xi uh, visiting uh, Vladimir Putin and uh, reestablishing Russian and Chinese ties, including military and economic ties. So much so that uh, from what I understand, uh, the revenue from Russian oil and natural gas is now uh, close to hitting all-time highs. So the supposed sanctions that have been leveled against the Russians as a result of the uh, situation uh, going on in, in, uh, in uh, the Ukraine uh, seemingly not really having an effect because these other nations have come in and began, uh, began to uh, take uh, the slack, if you will. So what does this mean for all this? Well, we talked a little bit about Kud's Day, the last day of Ramadan. That was uh, last Friday. Uh, that came and went, thank the Lord. But uh, we have already seen some dry runs being made by uh, the uh, Iranian proxies. Uh, we've seen uh, a number of missile attacks being launched uh, from Lebanon, where Hezbollah has uh, uh, well over 200,000 missiles aimed at Israel right now. Uh, we also saw last week a very interesting incident that really didn't get a lot of play in the major press, but a suicide drone came, uh, was launched from the Damascus area, flew very low and was able to penetrate Israeli airspace and was destroyed uh, as it got to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee uh, by the uh, Iron Dome defense systems. So, you know, we see these uh, kind of probing attacks being made, testing the offenses. We talked about how uh, the, uh, the, the general approach uh, that uh, the enemies of Israel might take 
to a war against Israel would be uh, trying to overwhelm the Iron Dome by uh, sending wave after wave after wave of missiles, hopefully bringing the Iron Dome to the place where they would run out of uh, the sophisticated rocketry, anti-rocket rocketry that they have, and then uh, be able to rain down an awful lot of destruction on Israel and uh, maybe even launch uh, through their militias that surround Israel and attack, very similar to see what we see described in Isaiah uh, 83, or I should say Psalm 83. Uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about Psalm 83 before. If you'd like to explore that more in the program, we certainly can. But uh, all this is just to say Israel has never been weaker, never been more divided internally, and this certainly would be an opportune time for the enemies of God's people to say, let us wipe them out as a people that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. That's a quote from uh, not uh, Abraham Ricey, although I'm sure he said similar things. But that's a quote from Psalm 83. So uh, let's be praying. It does seem like things are building up uh, to this kind of a conflict. Interestingly, you could see how God could turn this all around because the one thing that will certainly heal a lot of the divisions that we see in Israel right now is a common enemy. And uh, maybe that is what it's going to take. But uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and uh, keep an eye on uh, these uh, sort of things. And we'll keep you up to date on any of the other uh, prophetic issues that are going on. Uh, we were also asked a, a question uh, about uh, you know what our take was on the passing of uh, Dr. Charles Stanley. Right. Uh, boy, uh, I'll tell you, as far as someone who really pioneered uh, I guess we could use the term, it's sometimes used kind of uh, as a put-down, TV evangelism. Mm. Uh, but uh, there, when Charles Stanley and his in-touch ministry got going, uh, television evangelism was uh, kind of, uh, well, sort of a dog and pony show, a lot of extremism, right. uh, not a whole lot of scriptural teaching. The thing that I think uh, made Charles Stanley's ministry so impactful was, you know, it was essentially verse-by-verse uh, -verse Bible teaching. Oftentimes he would approach subjects topically, but always from a very solid biblical point of view. Uh, I always liked his, uh, his buzzword. He'd be teaching along and say, now listen, and he'd get your attention again, you know, like, oh, I better pay attention, you know, we begin to drift off. But uh, certainly an individual uh, that uh, I think if there's ever a guy who uh, left this world and heard uh, well done, good and faithful servant. It was uh, certainly Charles Stanley. Mm. So yeah. uh, certainly still, something we all aspire to. Yeah. Right, he was still teaching, right? Right up to, was he yeah, still? A, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, really yeah within a couple months of, uh, of his passing away. Yeah. Uh, if you go online, uh, you can see, uh, I guess what amounts to his uh, farewell address. It's like about an eight minute long uh -huh. uh, video that he uh, that he left and uh, it's it's very moving and very powerful. Yeah. And uh, I think his in touch ministry, much like uh, when Jay Vernon McGee passed away mm -hmm. in the eighties, you know, people said, Oh, you know, what's gonna happen to uh, through the Bible ministries? Well, listen to Christian radio. Uh, or, uh, or online, you know that, uh, uh, you know, again, through the Bible ministries, still uh, going strong. In fact, it's really interesting to me to hear Javen and Vernon McGee teach through uh, sections of prophecy in Scripture because, uh, boy, a lot of the stuff he was saying back in the 80s certainly is very uh, prescient and very on target for where we are yeah. right now. Wow. So I, I think Charles Stanley's uh, teaching is going to stand the test of time. Yeah. 
I think people are going to continue to be blessed by that because God's word never returns void. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And as a totally unnecessary side note, our support of Charles Stanley's ministry is no way an endorsement of his successor, Andy Stanley. Just well, to put that out there. Yeah, and Andy is not his successor. He's a pastor in another church in, uh, in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're two different animals. Mm. So, yep. yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah I appreciate that, that update. And, yeah, that question was from Dave. Uh, he was asking about Dr. Charles Stanley. So, yeah, we have some questions uh, coming in. We had a question yesterday from uh, from Sin joining us from Singapore, and he asked, "What is the purpose of tongues, and are there different kinds of tongues, like heavenly languages and known languages?" Obviously, it's a big issue. It's probably very different opinions from church to church. <laughs> well, hopefully, informed ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah but uh, that does seem to be, wouldn't you say, uh, a lightning rod? Uh, issue, uh, I mean, of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in the Bible, that one seems to be the most controversial. Oh, and that and the gift of prophecy, but we can talk about that when it's asked. When it comes to spiritual gifts, the first and I think most important thing is that when we're informing ourselves about its proper use, we don't say that because it works or it makes people feel good or it seems to curry some sort of favorable response from either non-believers or members of your church. We say something has a proper use because here, this uh, old neck of the woods affirms scripture as our ultimate authority on what God does and doesn't do, what he intends out of a spiritual gift, which people on both sides of the aisle would acknowledge. A legitimate exercise of tongues is a gift from God, not a work of man. So if that's where we meet on common ground, then it's where do we define that? How do we define that? And then of course, how do we practice that definition once it's established? So Sin, when it comes to the gift of tongues, uh, the best and probably only place you ought to go to answer your question directly are three chapters in scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, and 1 Corinthians 14. They're all right next to each other, so you don't have to go far. But when 1 Corinthians 12 lays out the kinds of spiritual gifts, this is where the Pentecostal bent, those who are more used to experiential uh, approaches towards God rather than scriptural, not at the expense of it, but generally they would put that as an authority. They would note, and this is where we would get that definition in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, of the gift of tongues being a legitimate form, a manifestation of the Spirit. We read this in verse let me start in verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries or services, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Here's verse 7 where we get into the examples. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, another a word of knowledge through the Spirit. Notice the same terms being used here as far as its source. Another knowledge through the same spirit, faith through the same spirit, gifts of healings by the same spirit, working of miracles, prophecies, discerning of spirits. Here's the crux. Different kinds of tongues to another, the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same spirit works all these things. What things? Including two things, the gift of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. That'll be important when we get to chapter 14. But note this, the same spirit Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So first definition of the gift of tongues is it's a work of the Holy Spirit 
not a work of man trying to conjure up these utterances, these words that aren't familiar to us. Obviously, definitions and examples are two different things, and we want to be sure about that. But if you want an example of the gift of tongues being practiced in its proper and legitimate context, you go to Acts chapter 2 at the Feast of Pentecost, where when the Spirit was poured out on the church for the first time, or at least, yeah, the church proper for the first time, they spoke in known languages, individual, not only languages, tongues literally, but dialects that were understood Mm -hmm. by all of those who didn't believe in Jesus around them, and they were amazed by this. And then it was used as a basically beachhead for evangelism for the first sermon Mm -hmm. given by Peter, which was another gift of the Spirit, the gift of prophecy. So when we're talking about where it comes from, what it is, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. No disagreement on that. The second is, of course, its priorities. And the answer to that definition is given to us in 1 Corinthians 13, not by command, but by contrast. This is verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, this is where that term is oftentimes used as a non-human language, that there are forms of tongues that no human has ever heard, and therefore this you know, just saying random noise. It's not the gift of men, it's the gift of angels, the tongues of angels. Well, note that that was spoken in the context of it being worthless without what? But have not love. I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, those of you who are music connoisseurs, Dave, you're a worship leader, you know that uh, sometimes brass instruments, the brass section of a music band, or clanging cymbals, drums are an important instrument in keeping a beat. But is that Paul's point here? No, he's saying it's meaningless noise. Right. If you have tongues but don't have love, it's worthless. And I can support that interpretation because verse 2 uses another gift of uh, the Spirit, and says that it's worthless without uh, without love. Verse 2, though I have the gift of prophecies, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And then even goes on to say martyrdom's worthless without the heart of God. So when yeah. we are exercising tongues, if it's not with the heart of God, then an act of God, quote unquote, is meaningless. That's mm-hmm. the second thing. It's meant to communicate the heart of God. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just useless yeah. noise. That's so powerful, isn't it? That you could you could die for God, but it could be nothing if it if it's not in love. That's, yeah, a, that's a really powerful statement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and not an easy death either. Yeah, no. <laughs> Give well, up your body to be burned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's true. Yeah. 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 But yeah. then to find out that was for nothing, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. 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 Now, this is where we then get into its proper use, the direct emphasis of your question, Sin. First four, uh, chapter 14 and verse 1 says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue, notice his point of contrast between those who teach God's word and those who speak in tongues. Those who speak in a tongue does not speak to men, but God. For, uh, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. So here's the first proper use of tongues is a, quote, prayer language. Now, Dad, you can testify uh, following the events of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, we gathered together as a right. church naturally should and just 
you know, did what Christians do. We involved God as much with our anxieties as with our hopes and our concerns for the future. And there was an experience where we saw this exercise of tongues being used uh, for the sake of the audience. You were there. I wasn't. I was at home, uh, you know, watching SpongeBob or whatever. What exactly (laughs) happened? And this will be important. Why is it so important that you were also there for it to be a legitimate gift? Well, it it was a really interesting set of circumstances because, again, you know, when 9-11 hit, it was certainly uh, something that had overtones uh, that would uh, pertain to the Middle East and what was going on in Israel and things like this. And, uh, you know, the the most uh, interesting thing that happened is we were praying and and asking for the Lord to to bless and protect. We had no idea what was going to happen next. Well, uh, in the back of the room, uh, you know, while we were praying, a woman uh, let out and uh, prayed a very nice prayer in Hebrew. Well, because I'd taken Hebrew in seminary, I was able to follow along uh, with what the content of that that prayer was. Mm. And, uh, and I just thought to myself, oh, you know, isn't that nice? Uh, you know, there's a Messianic Jewish person here, and, you know, being able to pray in that way is, is, is very appropriate. I didn't think anything else of it. Well, uh, after the prayer meeting got over, this one woman who had attended our church for quite some time came up to me and she was just looked a little distraught and she said, oh, you know, Pastor Scott, I am so sorry. And I said, what, for what? She goes, well, you know, I was praying and I really felt led to uh, pray in my, my prayer language out loud, but 1 Corinthians 14 says that there should always be an interpretation and there was none. Uh, so I, I just assumed that I was out of line and that, that it wasn't right. I said, you don't speak Hebrew. She goes, not a word. And I said, well, this, is, you think. I said, well, this is what you prayed. And, uh, you know, the funny thing to me about this was that not only was it a manifestation of someone being able to speak in a language, a dialect, uh, without learning it uh, in a supernatural way, uh, I realized that I had the interpretation, but it didn't come upon me because some, you know, wonderful feeling and spirit shivers happened. Mm-hmm. It was just a very natural, normal thing, and I was the one who dropped the ball. <laughs> I, I should have been the one Shame who, on you. who said, uh, "Oh well." By the way, for those of you who don't understand Hebrew, this is what our sister prayed. Uh, so you know, it was one of those things where you don't force it, you don't work things into a fever pitch. Uh, you know, the Bible does give us some uh, pretty interesting guidelines, right, as to the care and maintenance of this gift. And I think ignoring those is where we get into trouble, right? Which is why your role in that is what, how we recognize it as a legitimate gift, that it had an interpretation. Because in this sense, someone who's praying to God is understood by him. <laughs> yeah. God's the interpreter. But in a public setting where the gift of tongues is often used, or we would biblically say abused, is the idea that it's just making noise, and therefore someone's supposed to conclude that this is spiritual, not uh, just us calling for attention. In verse 6 it says, If I come to you now speaking with tongues, what shall I profit unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching, even things without life? whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will we know what is piped or played? And he goes on to use, again, musical instruments. There's a tune. There's a 
you know, structure to language. There's a structure to music. It's all supposed to follow a discernible pattern. You don't just blow on a cornet on a D note for five seconds and say, oh, I just played Mozart. Mozart's on the piano, not the trumpet. You get the point. <laughs> so when we're talking about these things, this is scripture, by the way. This is laying out for us the idea and he even says, regardless of passion, verse 12, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Now, edification, believe it or not, does not mean inspiring emotions, doesn't mean inspiring experiences or sensations. The word literally is what? To build someone up in knowledge right to understand not to experience not to sensationalize yeah, you learn something yeah and that's the point now obviously he goes on to note that these things should be understood how can you say amen or that is true when he doesn't understand what you say that's verse 16 and he even goes on to make something that would get you kicked out of a lot of of these abusive churches where they would say uh, for indeed you give thanks well but the other is not edified i think my god i speak with tongues more than you all yet in the church i would rather speak five words with my understanding that i may teach others also than ten thousand words in a tongue saul later renamed paul as a hebrew rabbi loved working through contrast and the point is well taken words that make sense yeah. in a church setting is where they belong if tongues are to be practiced how is that then to be exercised verse 20 brethren do not be children in understanding in malice be babes but in understanding be mature and he quotes the old testament interestingly enough in uh, isaiah 28 and verse 11. but he says in verse 22 therefore tongues are for a sign not to those who believe but to unbelievers but prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, before we get into that, obviously, he's going to go on to define this in the sense of corporate worship. But if prayer and the tongues therein, this is what sin's question is mainly centered around, has a purpose, it's always going to come with an interpretation. If God's the sole audience, he's the interpreter. If you're in a church setting, what's it intended to do? build people up in the knowledge the fear of god what the spirit always sets people out to do to glorify the father through the son now what's interesting about this as well is that when these gifts are exercised it's not only by the spirit for the spirit's purposes but a sense of priority that words that aren't understood are inferior as far as God's perspective is concerned, to words that can be understood because you're gathering together to learn things, not just to show off. And that's what Paul's point was. Now he goes on to note in verse 23, therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind, as they often do? And he's making that point. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of the heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. This is another area of common ground we can establish with those who abuse the spiritual gift. Are you building people up in the fear and the knowledge of God? And say, tongues the manifestation of the Spirit. So is Bible teaching. God can use that too. In fact, God would prefer that in a church setting, especially to unbelievers. Why? Because these goal, these gifts have a goal. 
These acts of the Spirit have a purpose. And if John 16 isn't your guiding light, your, your uh, compass heading, then you're missing the whole point. That's why he then says in verse 26, rather correctingly, how then is it, brethren, that when you come together, each of you is a psalm, each of you is a teaching, each has a tongue, each has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. There's that word again. If anyone speaks in a tongue, here's the final answer to your question, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. Here's another big deal in verse 28. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. This is another barrier to the oftentimes excuse that's made. Oh, I couldn't help myself. The spirit just took over and I had to blurt out in tongues. Right. No, the spirit is subject to the prophets. He's not going to force you into behavior like some exorcism, but in a good way. Yeah. When we're talking, or I guess a reverse exorcism in this case, come into me, spirit, you know? But the point being made is that there's no room for that biblically. You can lie, but that's not true by definition. <laughs> and he goes on, uh, noting the point here. Did the word of the God come originally from you, verse 36, or was it only that it was reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that all things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things, the tongues, the prophecy, any spiritual gift, be done decently and in order. What order? Tongues will include interpreters. Tongues should happen one at a time and in a set structure. Prophecy is superior to tongues in a gathering of corporate worship. Tongues is superior in prayer because God's then the interpreter and you're ministered to that way. But the goal of ministry is ministry, a service to the believer and the unbeliever. Both have their place. But when people then jump the gun and say, well, this is just what God decided to do today. God's always going to act in accordance with his word. Well, I couldn't help myself. God just took over. Spirit of the prophet subject to the prophet. Well, the, the purpose of God gathering together is to manifest gifts of his spirit. There's more than one gift of the spirit. And there's a reason why prophecy is preferred in a group setting and prayer and tongues is preferred in a prayer, a private setting. They have their place. But don't get that out of order and certainly don't say, well, I had this experience, so your interpretation of the Bible is wrong. Well, this will tie into a question we're going to get to in a minute, but if your interpretation of the scripture is based on you rather than the text itself, we call that eisegesis. You're right. reading into the passage what you want, not reading out of the passage what's being presented. Mm -hmm. That's why we went to Acts 2. That's why we can go to other passages where we were noting these had a purpose, these had a structure, and if they're going to be done, they're going to be done as God defined them. That's how I would approach the gift of tongues, not to be forbidden, but certainly to be informed. And groups, unfortunately, that, uh, well, definitely love when the Lord is acting. 
unfortunately do so in a way that isn't in alignment with this word, which means he's not actually acting. We'd rather God do a legitimate work in your life that you aren't excited by than you be excited by a false work of God. Just my thought. Yeah. So that, anything yep. to add? Uh, no, I think that covers it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Great uh, breakdown of that, Sean. Thank you. And thank you, Sin, for your question out there in Singapore. Hope that helps you out. Certainly should. That was great. We should uh, clip that video and post it on our website for anyone with that question, too. Uh, question here from Hunter. Uh, what is Calvary Chapel's position on inerrancy of Scripture? Inerrancy meaning that there's no errors, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, hopefully our point of view, Hunter, is uh, the point of view that uh, Jesus himself took. He first of all said uh, that he didn't come to annul or set aside the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He said, truly, uh, not one jot or tittle will pass from the law, referring to the Old Testament, until all things are accomplished. Uh, the Apostle Paul, writing later in the book of First uh, Timothy, chapter three and verse sixteen, uh, said, uh, "I should say Second Timothy three sixteen, said that all Scripture, literally each and every one, is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work." Now, with those two very strong declarative statements in mind, Jesus himself said that the Scripture cannot be broken. Uh, you know, again, the Bible also speaks in uh, passages like Proverbs chapter 30 uh, about how every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who deliver him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and be found uh, a liar. Uh, you know, we, we discover something about the Word of God, that it, it's inspired by God. Literally, it's God-breathed. Uh, we are told that no scripture is a matter of any private interpretation in Second Peter chapter one, uh, but that uh, holy men of God were uh, of old were moved by the Holy Spirit to write what they were to write. That is, the Holy Spirit came upon them and moved them. The word "moved" carries the idea of uh, the trade winds that uh, would uh, say blow a particular ship during that time to its desired port. You know, and so what we see in the Bible is this. God used man to write his word. He used the power of his spirit to be able to write exactly what he wanted written. And we have no less an authority than Jesus himself uh, giving two thumbs up to that particular view of Scripture. Now, you know, there are some obvious objections, the idea of biblical inerrancy. What we mean by inerrancy is this. Since the Bible, as it is, it was written in its original manuscripts, was divinely inspired by God, it's free from error. It is exactly what God wanted it to be. It is a prophecy, you see. It is not uh, man's takes about God, but rather God's revelation to man. Well, you know, when that comes up, people will say, but, you know, again, hasn't the Bible been changed uh, a lot of different times? Well, if you look at different uh, translations of the Bible, you will see that there are different translations that will give different takes on a particular verse. So we really need to understand that the Bible, as written in its original languages by the original authors, was free from error. We don't make the claim that every copy of the Bible is free from, say, scribal errors or things like this. Uh, but we do make the claim that uh, God has preserved his words so that we can know uh, really beyond a shadow of a doubt what those originals had to say. Uh, for instance, the New Testament that uh, we have today is based on, at uh, last check, nearly 6,000 
examples of Greek manuscripts. That is, uh, manuscripts were written in the original language the New Testament was penned in. To add to that, we have over 18,000 examples of versions, that is, translations of the Bible into other languages from around the time of Christ. Last week, we talked about uh, the discovery of a uh, version uh, that, uh, that really blew people's minds because it went back to uh, around uh, the mid-200s uh, in the Syriac language. And so that was a translation of the Greek into another language. It was, say, an entire copy of Matthew chapter 12 that was discovered. So, you know, when we, we say versions, that's what we mean. To add to this, we have over 86,000 examples of verse quotations in early church officials' correspondence to one another uh, that date, uh, say, to the, uh, the, the first four centuries uh, from the time of Christ. Well, we take all that data and compare and contrast, and, and boy, I'll tell you, the certainty we can have of understanding the reliability and uh, the, the transmission of the Bible is very, very powerful. Uh, sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, we got the Bible kind of like that uh, party game past the secret. You know, you whisper in someone's ear and, and, you know, you have a group of 10 people and at the end, the last person says what the message was and it doesn't even resemble what it was at the beginning. So that's really what's happened there. And people will make these assertive claims. We know that that's what happened to the Bible. Well, in light of the facts, in light of the manuscript evidence that we have there, Hunter, we got to change our rules a little bit. First of all, let's not make our message uh, using the rules of pass the, the secret along or telephone. Let's not make our message a nonsense message. Let's make it a message that was so important the people passing the message along would be willing to die for it. Would reliability of transmission go up? Let's not make it a message whispered, uh, you know, ear to mouth, so to speak. Uh, let's uh, make it a message that was written down and then each person can compare what was written down. Would, would reliability of transmission go up by writing down the message rather than whispering it? Yeah, it sure would. Let's not have one line of people passing the message along. Let's have uh, almost 6,000 lines of people passing that message along. And you kind of get where we're going here. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is uh, even the most uh, ardent skeptics like Bart Ehrman and others who will, uh, you know, sell books by saying, misquoting Jesus and, you know, oh, there are all these changes and trans uh, translation errors in the Bible, uh, manuscript errors. You know, when it gets down to it and you read the appendix at the end of these sensationalistic books, they have to admit that uh, anything that is held by even the most, uh, you know, secular scholars today, as being a problem passage of the Bible. We're really not sure it was a part of the originals or not. Uh, really, uh, you know, comes down to uh, less than one half of one page of text if we were to print it out. And no major doctrine of Christianity is called into question in any of these disputed texts. So when we say we believe in inerrancy, we believe that God meant what he said and said what he meant, that he was going to not only inspire his words so that we could know him, but he was going to preserve it for us as well. And so sometimes we have to do some homework. You know, sometimes uh, there will be uh, those that will say, well, you know, I like this English translation versus that English translation. Well, that's another issue entirely. Uh, the, the bottom line though is the actual text that the original uh, Bible was written in, uh, we have an overwhelmingly accurate view of what that was and you know when it comes to translations the variation uh, that you'll see in translations one for another really minuscule 
when it comes down to it. Uh, some translations are more free-flowing. Uh, we would call these dynamic equivalent translations that are more addressed to having someone just understand kind of the idea for idea uh, translations of the Bible. I prefer word for word. Uh, we use the New King James Bible in our church because we believe the King James Bible is a great Bible. The New King James Bible, as it uh, is uh, given to us now, has what's called an apparatus where it will show you not just uh, the rendering of a scripture on the Greek manuscripts on which the King James Bible was based, but it will also show you any variations in any of the other Greek manuscripts that have been discovered after the manuscripts that uh, the King James Bible was based. So that's the reason that we take the point of view that we do. Uh, you know, I was kind of looking at your questions there, and it sounds to me like you got into a dust-up with your dad about, you know, becoming a fundamentalist uh, or something like that. You know, the word fundamentalist is uh, really a, a hot-button kind of a word uh, when it comes down to it, but it, it really shouldn't be. It's one of these uh, words that has kind of taken on a negative connotation over time, mm -hmm. but uh, the term fundamentalist goes back to the early 1900s. Uh, when uh, some uh, scholars like B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen uh, were concerned about the drift uh, away from uh, the authority and inerrancy of the Bible in their own denominations, in their own seminaries, Princeton Seminary in this case. Uh, and so uh, they and a number of other people worked on what they called the fundamentals of the faith. And what they came down with were five essentials of the Christian faith, or fundamentals, if you will. Uh, the fundamentals of the faith really come down to this, that there is one God, uh, that we are saved by grace through faith, that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God, uh, that um, I'm trying to remember what the... Uh, you know the other ones are uh, the the fifth one has to do uh, with the return of Jesus, uh, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ. Mm. Uh, so these are the fundamentals of the faith. And so if someone says, "Are you a fundamentalist?" Uh, what I first want to do in that situation, Hunter, is ask him the question, "What do you mean by that?" If uh, what we mean is uh, you know some screaming ayatollah with a scimitar ready to uh, dispatch infidels, no, uh, uh, that that's not what characterizes my faith. But if what you're saying is is that I understand that there are five essential doctrines that we have to have under our belt if we're going to have any kind of meaningful conversation. Uh, in terms of defining what a Bible-believing Christian is, uh, inerrancy, the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God in the original manuscripts, the virgin birth of Jesus, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, substitutionary atonement, what it's called, that Jesus rose bodily, and uh, the authenticity of miracles, and later uh, the second coming of Christ uh, was added to this sort of uh, co-opted into one of the five fundamentals there. Mm -hmm. So if you were to ask me, do I believe all those things, I'd say, yeah, I believe that there are certain fundamental truths that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. And, uh, you know, what I try to do in a conversation like that is not to say, well, I'm a fundamentalist and, you know, and then, you know, it's, it's you versus me. You know, I try to say to them, now, this is why I believe these things are true. And this is really what we are called to do 
uh, that we are to give a reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and reverence, as the scripture enjoins us to do, give a, a reason, the word is logikos there, uh, that uh, we know what we believe and why we believe it about our faith, and that we're able to share it in a way uh, that uh, is meek. Now, that doesn't mean weak. It literally means power under control. So, you know, when someone kind of comes after you a little bit and calls you a fundy or, or things like this, uh, sounds you know, fun. It does uh, sound fun. Um, you know, usually the best thing to do at that point is to diverge a little bit and, and ask them a question that relates to the heart behind their objection. You say, wow, you really seem passionate about this. You really seem to be, you know, down on people, uh, you know, this point of view. Uh, how did you come to feel so poorly about it? Was there someone uh, associated with fundamentalism that kind of done you wrong or, or, or hurt you in some way? And it's amazing how many times you bring that up and you discover that the, the real battle that you're fighting doesn't have anything to do with, uh, say, the evidence uh, for the transmission of the scriptures or, or the fact that the Bible does stand up under examination as far as being inspired by God, although it was written by over by 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents and three different languages. It agrees down to the crossing the T's and the dotting of the I's, the most controversial subjects known to man, that it contains predictive prophecy, a supernatural element that no other holy book can claim. Uh, you know, have your dad read Isaiah 53 and then tell him that it was written 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. We know this to be the fact. Uh, you know, these are the reasons we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And, and, and so uh, when someone kind of comes after you that way, understand you got to take the conversation on a little bit more personal level and, and just hear the person out. You know, don't feel like you got to jump in if they mischaracterize things or they just say, oh, all Christians are like this and this and that. Just let them, let them talk. Let them, let them, just hear them out and then come to the end and when you come to the end, you know, maybe you can point out to them that, uh, you know, if Christianity was about some hypocrite that laid some heavy trip or abused them or ripped them off, uh, you wouldn't be a Christian either. But that's not what Jesus is all about. You know, and then ask them the question, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think he is? And then hear what they have to say. And if you can get the conversation, I have found, to focus in on the person of Jesus, then you're getting somewhere. If right. not, well, we're kind of spinning our wheels. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Uh, thanks, Hunter, for your question. Uh, I know you have a second question. We'll save that for now. We're coming up well, on the I end of our show. I can do it in 10 seconds. You, okay. All right. Yeah. Go for it. Uh, the question is, how do you respond when people condemn all of Christianity because of the hypocrisy of certain pastors? Christianity is not defined by Christians. Christians are trying to act like Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, Paul rightly said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If someone doesn't act like Jesus, that only proves they aren't him. We want to be like Jesus, who is always him. Yeah, that's why we would never call you to join our church or to follow a particular pastor. Uh, we want you to follow Jesus because he's no hypocrite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just realized I took the clock down, so I'm going to have to uh, guesstimate this in a moment. But <laughs> Okay. <laughs> just, uh, that's We're working excitement. without Keep an editor. on the outro. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, I don't, I'm not sure it will play because I blanked out that thing. Technical issues here, but yeah. that's okay. Um, Justin True asked, if angels are neither male or female but spirit, then how did these beings produce the Nephilim? How did they procreate? That's a controversial question. I well, hate everything. Let, well, let me, let me be <laughs> as blunt with this as I can. There's two points of view as far as 
the origin of the Nephilim. It says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and took wives for themselves of whomever they chose. And then it talks about how uh, that there were the Nephilim in those days, literally means the fallen ones, uh, both before and after uh, when the, the sons of God took the daughters of men as wives. Uh, there are those who believe that these giants, these Nephilim, if you will, uh, are the offspring of human beings and fallen angels. I do not believe that to be the case uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, Jesus said in the book of Matthew chapter 22 that angels are neither married nor are given in marriage. Now notice the sons of God mentioned here took these women as wives. Uh, it doesn't say they just sexually assaulted them. Secondly, uh, when we take a look at the, the context of what we're dealing with here, we have seen a, a couple of parallel genealogies leading into Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis 4, we saw the unrighteous line of Cain. In Genesis chapter 5, we saw the righteous line, a guy by the name of Seth. And now, when we come to Genesis chapter 6, we find that the knowledge of the true and living God was about to uh, fall off the face of the earth. Why? Because the sons of God, who I believe refer to the offspring of Seth, uh, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. That is the uh, offspring of Cain, and they intermarried with them. The reason I think this makes so much sense is we're talking about the five books of Moses when the people of Israel came face to face one of the most devastating spiritual attacks. It's when a guy named Balaam convinced uh, a, a guy wanted to destroy Israel to send these pagan women into the Israeli camp and get them involved in unequally yoked relationships and introduce idolatry in that way. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 to me makes a lot more sense as this kind of a shot over the bow as, a, as far as avoiding these kind of unequally yoked uh, relationships. And later on, we discover that uh, the Nephilim were back. Some people who say that these giants were the reasons that God had to wipe out the human race to re remove a human angel hybrid kind of a species. But in Numbers chapter 22, we find they're back in the promised land. Mm. So evidently, they weren't wiped out right. at the flood. Numbers yep. 13, Matthew 22 is the one that says angels neither marry nor give marriage given in marriage. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Very uh, good. I got the passage here. Okay. That's all we have time for. Thank you so much. We'll see you back here again, same time, same place. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.